Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And you're listening to The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. <laughs> oh my god. It's ingrained. Old habits. Old habits die hard, my friend. Oh my god. Okay, let's try it again. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And we're going to take you away from the play. What a great episode. What a great episode. And honestly, that was a great introduction. It was perfectly flawless. I don't care what anybody thinks. That was wonderful. Oh, it's but too hard. It's too hard. It's, you know, it's it's going to take a while. Honestly, it's going to take a while. But you know what? This week, we had such a great guest, Moshe Lander, uh, professor of economics at Concordia University, and he's taught elsewhere as well. And, and is on TV all the time talking all matters econ, but today... He's your go-to guy about that, yeah. But today we sport, uh, we focused on sports economics. I think it was really insightful, just kind of look, trying to look objectively at like uh, how women's sports can become successful. And I think a key takeaway is that there's a lot of potential. We just have to keep plugging away, and one day we're going to break through that glass ceiling. Exactly. And, you know, sports economics is a side to sports that fans don't really get to see much, right? Because it's not what's being played out on the ice or on the court or whatnot. It's really what's taking place behind the scenes, right? So I think this was an important topic for us to address. And, uh, you know, before we let you all listen to this episode, we just want to plug uh, Moshe's uh, social media accounts so you can find him on Twitter at Moshe Lander Uh, so be sure to follow him and enjoy this episode Welcome back, guests. We have an exciting guest today. We have Moisha Lander. He's a professor of economics at Concordia. He seems to lecture everywhere. He's on the news all the time. And we're really excited to have him because he actually reached out when we were the last stretch and we finally are able to have him on our show. And we're just excited to talk about sports econ. I think it's something people don't know a lot about. And first off, how are you holding up right now? It's the pandemic and I know you're stuck in your house like most of us, so I'll give you the courtesy to answer. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well. It's an uh, it's, uh, interesting experience, I think, that all of us have gone through. It's hard to believe that it's uh, seven months. I, I don't know if it's been seven weeks or seven years. It's just uh, it's all blurs day now, I think. <laughs> blurs days, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And, I mean, today is exciting for us because we're finally using Zoom, which is nice to be able to see our guest. It definitely helps with communicating and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we tend to ask questions over ourselves. So I guess, Moisha, first softball questions. For people who don't know, like, what is sports economics? And, like, how is it different than any other economics in a business? Like, is running a sports team, a sports league, that different than running any other kind of business, whether it be a restaurant or a clothing industry? Um, if you can, for everyone, just, like, what are the major differences or is, is it the same? 
Um, you, you know, at the end of the day, it is the same thing, right? Um, economics applies to every aspect of your life. So, you know, you, you would teach an intro level student, right, that economics is just about making choices. You have unlimited wants, limited resources, and how are you going to decide what's important in life? You got to make trade-offs and things like that. So you can take that and apply it to anything, to your relationships, to your job, to uh, how many slices of pizza to have on a Friday night. <laughs> and, and so the fact is it, it translates really nicely into sports, right? There's uh, a bunch of competing different actors out there, whether it's owners, players, agents, uh, and all of them have different objectives. You know, the, the owners want to make profits. Uh, much as we think they want to have championships and things like that, they, they want money and, and players might want maximized salary given their limited time. And so there's all of these trade-offs that are involved. And so it's really just taking those, those underlying ideas of economics and attaching it to a sports context. And as a sports fan, it makes it a lot of fun then because I get to say that, you know, watching a game is just part of my research. So, um, <laughs> uh, but it's, yeah, but it's, it, it's a fascinating area. And, and uh, you, you know, the nice thing of course, is that it gives lots of data so you can go out and test your theories and test to see the way that people behave and do they actually follow a consistent pattern. And so it's really eye-opening when you're a sports fan and you come into contact with this idea that, hey, there's a business back there and it is no different than Walmart or Apple and they're looking to make money and they're doing it in the most efficient way possible. So uh, it's really exciting. Yeah, and that's from the excellent. fans' perspective, it's, you know, they don't necessarily think of it, right? And that's kind of why we want to have this podcast is to kind of show that side of sports that we don't see out on the ice, on the court and whatnot. So jumping in specifically to, you know, sports leagues themselves, you know, what are some of the key ingredients that makes a sports league viable and sustainable? The, the, the biggest one is that remember that what the sports league is offering you is essentially the good uh, is the uncertainty of outcome. Okay? So okay. when I go to Tim Hortons and I buy an ice cap, I know exactly what I'm getting. In theory, it should be the same ice cap no matter what Tim Hortons I go to, I'm going to get the same thing. When I go to a movie, what I'm looking for is to be entertained. And in part, it's also an uncertain outcome. If you know exactly how the movie's going to end, uh, it, it makes it a little more difficult to enjoy. But if, if there's a twist, if there's a surprise, if there's a plot change or something like that, then it makes it exciting. Sports is offering that same thing, except it's, of course, not scripted. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, then, even though you know that Team A is so much better than Team B, you still watch because you want to see if Team B at least puts up a good fight, if they can be the Cinderella story and overcome Team A. Uh, if you're a degenerate gambler, you want to just see if they can cover the spread and so that you can recover your money even if they lose. And so, uh, you know, that, that's really the object that you're investing in when you watch it or when you buy a ticket to go see it. You want to be entertained and you want to know that the outcome is not predetermined. Right. Excellent. So that's the good, right? So that's what people are going for. I guess like on the back end, if I own a league or something, how, how are you selling that to people? So in part, you need to be a monopoly, right? Um, that's a weird sort of idea because usually we think that monopolies are a bad thing, right? You want yeah. competition. The competition aspect is that the teams themselves compete against each other, but at the end of the day, they compete under the umbrella of one league. You can't have two leagues competing because eventually what happens is they, they compete for talent too. And so mm -hmm. we saw that with two competing women's hockey leagues, that it's just not viable when you have two leagues competing one of them is going to be driven out of business. Uh, and that's inevitably the way it ends up. So whether that's, you know, the NBA and the ABA back in the 70s, the WHA and the NHL back in the 70s as well, 
Um, the AFL and the NFL merged to become the NFL in the 1960s uh, because this, you can't have those two leagues. So, you, you know, you have to remember then that each of the owners is effectively like a franchise owner, like Tim Hortons. And so while they're all playing for the same team in a sense that they want the success of Tim Hortons, what makes them different is that on the ice, on the field, on the pitch, they're viciously competing against each other to, to win. And so viability comes by being able to block out competition from other leagues, and then at the same time, creating a set of rules and institutions and infrastructure that allows the, the sport to be viciously competitive. It's utterly uninteresting if you have one team that dominates from day one to day 100 or whatever, yeah. um, because it, it violates that uncertainty of outcome. So, you know, you keep tweaking the rules or free agency or salary caps or revenue sharing or all of these sorts of things that we, we understand as fans. Mm -hmm. They're tweaking that to make sure that there's not a predetermined outcome. And that's really how they become viable. So the fans are tricked. We think they're tweaking that because we want our team to win. But they're tweaking it because they don't want to be too good or else the, the business is going to collapse, essentially. Yeah, it's, it's boring, right? Like, look, if you're, if you're New England Patriots fans, the last 20 years have been extremely exciting, right? Yeah. Um, but um, the fact is that from the league standpoint, they say this is no good because at some point, weird as it is, winning gets boring. And if yeah. you want an example, you know, go take a look. What was it about three years ago, four years ago? Golden State went 73 and 9. And so, you know, through the first 20 games when they're like 18 and two, like, you're like, wow, this is fantastic. And then after <laughs> yeah. a while, it's like, all right, you know what? Just text me if they're losing. And then <laughs> other than that, it's, it's, you know, by game 70, it's like e even the players themselves said they were exhausted. Yeah. Uh, you know, we saw Draymond Green saying when they lost the championship that year, they said, we lost because we were just mentally drained. We couldn't handle the repeated questions of, <laughs> You're going to win again tonight. You're going to win again tonight. You're going to win again tonight. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so the league basically has to do things like creating those salary caps or those sort of restrictions of the way that players can move or how much talent you can accumulate mm -hmm. because it, it does get old. And at that point, the players, um, the, the, the fans stop watching. And if you stop fans from watching, you lose the, the revenue dollars, you lose the, um, the, the advertisers, and it's, it's not good for the viability of anybody. Yeah, so I guess like since we kind of brought it up about two competing leagues and obviously I play women's hockey and I'm part of the PWHPA. So the big question with any female sports is like, they're just not as good as the men. That's what we hear all the time. Like from a personal level, you're not as good as the men. That market is saturated. I guess like from your professional opinion, you know, are we entering a market that's like you said, you don't want, you want to be a monopoly. So are we trying to compete against the men's league or is there like an area where we can create our own monopoly as far as like women's sports fans? So Melanie, that, that's the multi-million dollar question that <laughs> all women's sports have to deal with, right? So look, it, there, there, it's a no-win situation and I hate to be negative about it, but that's okay. it, it, it kind of is a no-win situation. Listen, if you go out and you play on the same ice surface, if you play with the same rules, with the same three periods of 20 minutes and okay, look, the reality is from just a physiological standpoint, the women are never going to be able to skate as fast, hit as hard, uh, shoot the puck as, as hard as the men. So on, on the one hand, that's just physiology. Mm -hmm. If you have a limited number of disposable income dollars, do you want to watch Zdeno Chara strike 105 miles an hour from the point, or do you want to see 75 miles an hour from the women's game? 
right? Unfortunately, I think people are going to stump up for the 105 miles an hour as opposed to the 75. If you change the sport then, smaller ice surface or less distance between the blue line and the net and things like that so that you can kind of compensate, right? Then all of a sudden you get accused of, well, that's not real hockey. So you can't win no matter what you do, right? Mm -hmm. it's, you either stick to kind of playing the, the men's design um, with the physiological impediment or you tweak the game so that, look, we're watching something that's, you know, uh, its own brand, but then you're into kind of the CFL versus the NFL. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right? I see what you're saying. You know, I guess I didn't stop people from tuning in every four years at the Olympics, right? So that's the, that's the good. Right. And, and listen, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the women's game in women's hockey, women's basketball. So, uh, you know, what you need to do then to create that monopoly is you need to differentiate yourself, yeah. right? So mono uh, Monopoly, McDonald's operates in like a very competitive marketplace for crappy burgers, right? But when they sell you that, that Big Mac is uh, a taste of freedom. It's a taste of Americana. It's a taste of like, it, and they distinguish themselves from the Whopper or from the Wendy's single or they get a little bit of monopoly power there, which gives them the ability to charge $6 for that hunk of junk, right? right. Yeah. So not to say that the women's game is a hunk of junk. That's not quite the apt analogy. But, you know, what the women need to do then is find a way to differentiate themselves from the men game. And, you know, one of the things that's been very successful in the last 12 months is um, the women's games getting uh, much more associated with social causes Mm -hmm. uh, we saw that with the WNBA, that they took a stance much faster than the men's game did. And the women were much more willing to speak out on particular issues. Maya Moore just walking away from the game entirely because of her belief uh, on certain sort of social justice issues. That type of thing then allows you to differentiate, to create a fan base then that's going to be much more committed to the women's game because not only are you providing that uncertainty of outcome and entertainment factor, mm -hmm. but you're also providing a chance for um, you know, uh, the, the idea of here's also social commentary. Here's us being part of the people as opposed to being the multi-million dollar men's athletes that seem kind of divorced from reality. Yeah. Right. But I guess in that sense, like if McDonald's still selling the same burger as Burger King, right. And they're selling, they're marketing it as like Americana and a dream, like the product didn't change or just as like the WNBA, basketball is still basketball it's equivalent to the men's as far as rules etc and the I guess the layout of the game but then they're kind of tapping into social justice and being a little bit more approachable as a person or an individual so in that sense do you think that that can be uh, an avenue for success where you, you know the women's game wouldn't have to change you're just tapping into to a different market as far as the the kind of people you're reaching to the fan base you're building I mean Evidently, I, I think, you know, it's how you kind of market yourself. Example, why does everyone love the iPhone? You know, there's, I think, a lot of other phones out there that are equivalent or just as good now, but people have like a loyalty to the iPhone. So I guess is, do you think that's a different avenue where the women, we wouldn't have to change the game and it could be just as entertaining. We just have to kind of approach the way we market ourselves differently. Do you think that's a, a stream yeah. of success? Yeah, that's exactly it, right? It, it, it's recognize, it, recognize what the game is and don't apologize for it. Don't 
um, you know, make any excuses that, yeah, well, it is different that just look, this is the product and mm -hmm. you're going to build up a very dedicated, hardcore fan base. A again, the, the analogy to me is like the idea of the CFL that, you know, if you say anything negative about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, watch how fast your inbox fills yeah. up with, with comments from people That's that say true. you don't know what you're talking about, right? So you can build up a very hardcore fan base and say that this is where we stand in terms of off ice issues and this is where we stand in terms of on ice issues as well and yeah you know the the idea is you can't be all things to all people and so as soon as you accept that this is what we are this is what we do this is what the game is um then you will see that yeah you, you can be viable you can be successful and i i think that part of it too is that the longer that the league lasts right the quality does improve i i i don't want to uh, insult a Canadian institution, right? But, you know, Melanie, you could probably speak to it better than I could. I'm not sure that like a Haley Wickenheiser could survive in today's women's hockey game, uh, where she was one of a kind in her time. The fact is that mm -hmm. she provided an avenue for better training, better diet, better, uh, you know, health, better uh, approach to the game. And the game now is much better. And so it, it's almost kind of like where the women's game is now is almost like where the men's game was in the 1950s exactly. in terms of pay, in terms of structure, and, you know, being kind of connected to the people. But um, it's through the 1950s that leads to the 1970s, which leads mm -hmm. to the 21st century. And so, yeah. you know, there, there is that element then that the game will continue to advance itself and as it advances it will diverge from the men's game and have its standalone idea it's just a matter of being able to hang around long enough to do it right and so <laughs> yeah. one of the things we wanted to talk about today especially was you know looking at the nwhl and the pwhpa so we'll get into the end of later on in the in this conversation but pwhpa obviously mal you're part of the association uh they've been barnstorming up until you know the pandemic uh hit Across the world and now everything is on pause and one thing we were curious to get your opinion on is the PWHPA's approach to gaining more support from a sponsorship level uh, marketing and as well as fans and just staying in the conversation by going to different cities and playing non-competitive games I know a lot of the players have talked about you know missing that that you know competing for a for for a trophy right but it's a purpose that's bigger than them almost. So I was curious to know what you thought uh, of that approach and, and if you think that it was, if it is a successful approach in to move, taking steps towards building a, another professional women's hockey league. You have to stay in the public consciousness, right? That, that's the biggest issue right now where, you know, the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, MLB, uh, MLS, all of them recognize that we, we can't afford to sit down for 12 months, 18 months, yeah. 24 months, right? And so whether it's uh, legitimate that what we just saw is a, a legitimate Stanley Cup winner, whether we're really going to believe that whoever wins next week, the, the World Series is really the champion of Major League Baseball, whatever, we're willing to suspend disbelief because the world right now is kind of in suspended disbelief. <laughs> um, I, I would say that, look, barnstorming, of course, is a, a great thing. It, it is reminiscent of the 1950s, 1930s men's game where they would just kind of travel through small towns and, hey, here we are and try and build a brand, try and build a, a, a following. 
um, being able to reach out to advertisers and financial backers and say, look, there is a market here and this is what we can provide you is great. I, I would even go so far as to say, weird as it might sound, the pandemic actually is a fantastic opportunity for the women's game to be able to operate on a league basis because uh, bubblenomics has been working. And one of the biggest problems with barnstorming, of course, is the cost that you have to travel. And, you know, um, hockey is one of those games where it's very spread out in terms of its fan base. You've got the American Northeast, you've got the American Midwest, and then, of course, you've got Canada. But Canada is 7,500 kilometers from one end to the other. So to barnstorm is beyond just mentally, physically exhausting. It's financially exhausting. If you could take those great players that are all playing essentially in this one setup and put them locked down in Toronto or in Edmonton where the bubble has been shown to work for the NHL and then play some sort of 10 game, 12 game kind of round robin with the, the what should be the, the existing teams, uh, create a championship, here's the Clarkson Cup and let's go out and, and, and give this a yeah. shot you've got an opportunity here, especially in the wintertime, to capture a market. Um, yeah. You know, the NHL is not starting until January or February. The NBA is not there. Uh, the NFL seems to now be turning into a seven-day-a-week sort of sport. Okay. But the fact is that they can only put on one game at a time. So, look, TV channels, sports channels, 24 hours uh, of programming is needed to fill that spot. Uh, you can now take advantage of, hey, we're going to go lock ourselves down for a month we're going to play every other day for, uh, you know, four weeks, then create a, a quick little playoff. Uh, that's an effective way. And the fact is that it, it works. If everybody behaves themselves in the bubble, this will be much more successful than I think barnstorming was, uh, yeah. where it's just kind of community to community, pocket to pocket. Uh, and, you know, find that community. Hey, this is great. And then you're gone for a month until you come back around on the next time through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because that was going to be our next question. Like, what do you think this COVID-19, obviously it's having ramifications everywhere, but what was going to be its effect on women's sports? And I was thinking of it more as like a, like on the negative side, mm -hmm. Hey, I think the bubble idea would be excellent, but the reality of our situation is that about half of us are working uh, full time. So unfortunately I can't take a week off my job. It's sure the, people in the national development program have the the luxury of going to play in that bubble. And, you know, if this is something we would have to do, I would hundred percent sacrifice myself and just be a fan at that point. But um, the reality is like women's sports, I feel like are often under invested in and a perfect example, I guess would be like the international federation has canceled all tournaments except for, the world juniors, the U18 world juniors on the men's side. And, you know, part of their press conference was like, well, we don't know how it would work with the other smaller tournaments. And, you know, we'd just kind of waste money. So now we'll save money there and we'll be able to form a bubble for the men. So like the way I read it was like, Hey, well, we'll just, you know, we aren't, we're going to pull away any little investment we had on the women's side to, to continue to promote like another men's sports league. So I guess, like, I think the WNBA had a lot of success during their bubble season. I think a large part of their success was just having a, like you said, social justice, uh, kind of that platform on everyone's personal Twitter, uh, Instagram, et cetera. But I think they, they were televised more 
and people were at home more and had the opportunity to to tune in a little bit more so I guess like you know for us who we might not have the initial investment I guess how do we approach investors and, and try to market ourselves to be like you you potentially have an opportunity like in the 1950s on the men's side were people more willing to jump in because it hadn't been done before and now our investors a little bit reluctant to 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 jump on board because they're like there's a thousand other sports leagues i i think it's all a matter of investors want to get behind what's profitable right so when yeah. you're talking about you know the the u18 world juniors are going to go ahead right that's built up a brand over 30 years 40 years and of course um canadian success in it right if mm -hmm. um the canadians weren't as successful and always competing for the gold uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that they would be so uh, excited about going for it. But when you know that, you know, the American team have also started to rise recently, well, now you've got then uh, the key markets, uh, Canada mm -hmm. and the US. And so, you know, even just advertising a 30 second spot during that game is all of a sudden financially justifiable. Mm -hmm. um, you're right. Back in the 1950s, remember that a lot of those players were earning you know, a little bit more than uh, what everybody else was earning at the factory or whatnot. But a lot of them had jobs, you know, working car dealerships and working construction and things like that in the off season to, to make ends meet. Um, and so they would kind of take a part-time job. And it almost is kind of reminiscent these days of um, maybe let's call it the second tier of Olympic sports where a lot of the athletes competing for the Olympics just don't yeah. have the capacity to up and leave their job to go train full time. And it's kind of that necessary evil um, I, I think what's going to happen with women's sports is that, you know, you need to go to financial backers and say, look, we can't deliver you a profit necessarily this period. We can't even necessarily yeah. deliver you a profit two, three years from now, but we have a business plan five, 10 years out. And, and this is the way that we're going to make it go. Um, if you can get on board with us now, if you can align, you know, our social justice values and our beliefs and uh, and it matches your company's beliefs, then yeah, you're, you're going to see something very similar in the way that in the 1950s, right? It was, it was the local businesses that associated with the team. You didn't have these national deals. And when that started to come along, that was kind of the rising tide that started to float all the boats in the league. Yeah. Um, again, you know, in the, the case of women's hockey, the big issue is going to be that the, the model itself where you have one team planned for Calgary and they're just sitting out there in isolation. And then you've got teams, uh, you know, in Toronto and then into the U.S. Um, you're, you're always going to have this travel issue that you just can't yeah. overcome. And you, you can't play three nights in a row. You can't even play really four out of five nights without really compromising the, the quality of the product that you're watching. So if you're going to have Calgary have to travel literally across the country or internationally, um, you're all of a sudden increasing the cost in a way that's going to make it very difficult to uh, convince ownership groups to want to invest in all of the training facilities and mm -hmm. all of the, the uh, expense that goes. Uh, and when you're already uh, earning, say, $20,000 a year compared to the men's game, which is earning in the millions, um, there's going to be this continued disparity then as well that just continues to pose a problem for how does that league overcome it? Again, like I said, you know, it, it almost seems like post-pandemic some sort of bubble system 
is going to be the way to work, even if it's fine that, you know, Melanie, you can't leave your job. Okay, maybe what we do then is we just have these kind of quick little mini tournaments where everybody comes in almost like um, the NCAA March Madness setup. Okay, where yeah, okay. Everybody pods up for a quick little go round. Then we go away for a week. Then we come back and we pod up again. It's kind of the way that university sports are working, right? Where essentially you're a full-time student and then mm -hmm. we're going to game up for a little bit and then send everybody back. Um, that might be a way too to kind of overcome it. And then all of a sudden when you can show that, hey, there's a bottom line here that can be profitable, that's how you start kind of building up that business association. Makes sense. So switching gears just a little bit, we wanted to also address more on the WNBA and the NWSL in terms of their structures. Now, I think a lot of our, our members aren't experts in, in sports economics and, and, and whatnot. So I was wondering, could you maybe go into what makes the WNBA so successful, especially now? I mean, they've been around longer. So for sure, teaming up with the NBA as well has helped with marketing and whatnot. But it was a rough couple of years at the start. And I feel like now they're finally starting to emerge from that and prove that their game is just as good as the guys. So. I was curious if you can maybe get into, you know, how they kind of built their league and if you want to also chime in a bit on the NWSL as well, uh, feel free to. Sure. So, you know, the WNBA is heading for um, what now, 24, year 25. And, and you're right, there, there were a bunch of dark days there where that league was teetering on the brink at times. Um, you know, what, what's made them successful too is, of course, that um, there's always this um, pool of players coming up next, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, again, the, the quality of the game continues to accelerate because there's, you know, as you get more exposure, it encourages more young girls to take up the sport. As they train better, as they work harder, as they get more opportunity as youth, they can rise into the college game. Title IX was a huge advantage then in terms of funding for women's sports within universities. And now they reach the pros. That sets off another round of young girls who say, hey, look, I can do that. And so it, it is something that you basically had to endure the very dark days of the early going to be able to become kind of financially viable. The backing of the NBA is huge. It's one of the big things then that women's hockey has now done is by being able to get the NHL on board and to provide some of that backing and to provide some of that uh, assistance to, to kind of let them work through the dark days. Um, that's going to be super helpful as well. Uh, the fact too is that in terms of being able to encourage that bottom-up training, basketball, relatively speaking, it's super cheap. Yeah. You need a ball. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of it, right? Um, at least in the early going. So, you know, as opposed to say hockey, which is a much more intensive sort of investment in terms of just equipment and the fact that at growing, you need to constantly replace that equipment, replace your blades, replace your sticks and things like that. Um, it, it's an expensive prospect. Soccer is in the same realm then right. as basketball. It's, it's very inexpensive. You need a ball. Um, and so again, the same sort of thing then that the, the women's soccer league, um, has been able to slowly start to build some degree of success because you can go into a community and you can say, Hey, you can do this too. You just have to be committed. Um, what the women's game is going to need on the hockey side is a lot of financial support as well, not just from investors for the league itself, but in trying to encourage that grassroots support from young girls that want to take up the game. Every community complains about the lack of available ice time, the lack of available training space, the lack of available 
um, you know, uh, resources that are pooled at the community level. And, and that's always going to be that kind of hindrance then that makes it slightly different. The other thing too is that where the WNBA tried to start off originally with matching, say, a women's franchise with a men's franchise, um, fine. They've slowly started to be able to kind of create their own yeah. uh, league and move away from that. The owners now are not necessarily the same as the NBA owners. Um, their, their problem in the beginning was, in part, they started off too big, right? Um, start small. And I think the Women's Soccer League has kind of figured that out. You know, nine teams, not 30 teams, right? So you can concentrate a lot of talent in uh, very few teams. And, and that's, of course, going to also increase the value of the, the product. Um, every time the NHL has expanded, Every time Major League Baseball expanded, how many times did you hear fans say, this is just going to water down the quality of the game? Now you're going to take all of these star players and you're going to spread them too thinly. And now some third rate player is going to get a spot on the bench where they never belonged in the first place. And right. So if you overexpand too quickly and you don't have the talent base to be able to put on that top notch product, that just reinforces the bias that's already out there that the women's game is not as good as the men's game. Yeah. If, you, if you stick to nine teams then in soccer, um, then great, you can concentrate all of that World Cup talent, all of the talent that most fans only see once every four years at the Olympics or once every four years at the, the World Cup, and you can put them on essentially like super teams. Again, yeah. go back to the men's game in the 1950s, right? The NBA was eight teams. Mm -hmm. The Boston Celtics had seven Hall of Famers on their one team a bench player was a hall of famer because they were all so elite talented, right? Go back to the days of the surviving six of the NHL. Exactly. The six, it's the surviving six, right? The Montreal Canadiens had a roster that was just loaded with talent, right? Even Not anymore. Right, <laughs> for sure. And as a Sabres fan, good. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, you know, but the fact is now that the, the 21st player on the bench of the Buffalo Sabres um, is clearly better than probably Maurice Richard was back in the 1940s, 1950s, because um, the, the training got better. And so it was able to absorb the expansion in a way that didn't compromise the quality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the Women's Soccer League is going to expand out in the next couple of years, assuming that this ever lifts on us. Um, but notice that they've now been able to get financial backers coming in. That LA franchise that has like Natalie Portman as like the yeah, front yeah. line, you know, the, the yeah. fact is that yeah, Serena Williams is coming in and supporting these teams. And right, you're, you're now getting that reinforcement that, hey, we're willing to suspend profitability for a little bit mm -hmm. in order to provide that support to get through the dark days. And so, um, you know, the NWA model of we're here to stay and we're going to find a way to make it work. Remember, there were two leagues back in the day and one of them got driven under. And that's what also allowed it to get through the dark days. Right. Um, as they rise, salaries will go up with it. And that's going to create another reinforcement effect that, hey, when you start to realize that, Melanie, you don't have to work full time, there is a career here so nice. where you can make money. It, 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 it's the next generation that's going to say, great, um, yeah. we, we don't have to worry about 20 grand a year. We'll be up to 75,000 a year. And again, it, it, it's a model to build after, but you need to have that. We're in it no matter what. It's better to start off small too, because that way you don't, you want to build a fan base and you don't want to betray them. So if you start with 30 teams and then you have to go down to 10, that's just going to hurt your, undermine your credibility as well. And that's, no, 
and that's no different than any other business, right? So exactly. at the very at the very top, when we were talking about how is sports different than other, you know, you don't start off with ten thousand Starbucks. You start off with a couple in Seattle and see how it goes, and then yeah. you put a couple in in Portland, and then you check to see where your your fans are, right? Yeah. So Starbucks kind of spread based on where the demand was, and so I, I think that starting off small, making sure you hit the key markets, making sure that. Um, there's a solid product there. Talent is concentrated. You mm -hmm. need to, you know, in, in women's hockey, you need to suck in those Europeans, right? You need to make yeah. sure that they want to come here and play, not the other way around. And so you can still see that, you know, some of the WNBA players, for example, they'll take off to Russia to yeah. go play, or they'll take off to Europe to go yeah. play in the off season. Um, that's great. They're looking to supplement uh, a low salary. Mm -hmm. They're looking to keep their game sharp. But at some point, the WNBA is going to accelerate to a point that it's going to be, hey, you don't need to do that anymore financially. And yeah. you don't want to do that because you don't want to compromise um, that this is where the talent is. And that's why you don't see NHL players racing off to the Swedish Super League. or um, They are doing it now because they didn't have a proper season yeah. um, because of the <laughs> pandemic. But generally speaking, it, it's not done because... This is where the talent is, and, and the game is now solid enough that you don't have to worry about its viability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, even with the PWHPA this season, COVID, <laughs> but um, we've, we've created finalized rosters for each region just to make sure that, A, we could build the competitiveness. So now we would be competing with our region. So Montreal would be competing as a team versus the other region. So... I mean, that's going to hopefully drive up just the, the competition of the game. You know, we're, we're going to have a lot more team environment. And I'm, I'm saying all this, ignoring Corona, let's say. And then, um, you know, in concentrating the talent for us, it, it is the same thing. So we had to compete and try out for the team. Um, obviously, those who didn't make it, you know, they're still part of the PWHPA and kind of building that momentum. But this is something I always speak to talent is, you know, like you said, Haley Wickenizer might not be able to hold her own in the league now, just as I see new college girls and they're insanely good. Like I'm going to become irrelevant real soon. But the, the problem is without having like a viable league, these people are leaving hockey at 21 because A, they don't have a job in Montreal. Their job can't let them play. They just like, they're like, I don't want to do this for free anymore. I don't know. So you know, I guess for us is, I don't really know how it worked on the men's side in the 1950s, but, you know, I feel like there needs to be like a benchmark investment so people could just play and just play and, and you could poach the good players, you know, out of college right away saying, hey, don't, don't go back home to Sarnia, come play uh, here in Montreal. So I guess like, I guess, I don't know, in your experience, is that how it worked in in the 1950s on the men's side? And do you think this is something that made the WMEA successful? Because my understanding is when they started that league, it was like, hey, you have somewhat of a basic living salary. I mean, it doesn't have to be a living salary. In Europe, you lose a lot of hockey girls because they go, come here. We have a house for you. You, you won't make any money, but you get to live in Europe and you don't have to worry about any costs. Do you think this is what needs to happen? For us to kind of start that slow growth but my opinion of like the CW is just like too slow like we never hit that that first big step which is living wage do you think that's what's needed so you know the the hockey women's and men's is very much a gate driven sort of league 
right? Okay. So the, the model is that you got to put bums in seats. So of course, the, the virus itself is completely devastating to all forms of hockey uh, because, you know, the biggest complaint that the, the marginal fan will say is that they just can't follow it on TV. The, the in-house experience is so much easier to follow than the on-TV experience. Now, a hardcore fan says, hey, what are you talking about? It's a piece of cake to watch. Um, but of course, that takes years of investment in, in learning how to watch it and being able to, to, to tolerate um, how you can follow a puck uh, on a moving screen. The, the problem, of course, is that if the women's game right now is paying $20,000 a year, then what is, say, a development league going to be paying, right? So, you know, baseball started off with kind of, you know, single A, double A, triple A, and then you make your way up to the majors, right? Hockey has it in like the AHL or the ECHL, which is kind of like the development league. So once you reach 18, 19 years of age and you're out of the CHL or you're out of university, then you do have a way to continue to develop your talent. Yeah. The NBA has tried to invest in the G League uh, as a way to try and create their own sort of development league, right? But of course, those things are different where if the elite players are making millions of dollars a year, then you can pay per diems, you can pay $10,000, $20,000, you can billet people, and that's okay. Um, because there's the promise of riches to come, right? Every one of those athletes that's willing to uh, have a billet as an OHL player for Sarnia um, has the belief that it's worth it because one day they're going to be captain of the Leafs. If what's being dangled in front of you is that, hey, you've got a career ahead of you playing for Calgary uh, and the Inferno is going to pay you 20 grand a year, you say, what? <laughs> right? Um, but if you want to say that, okay, then we need to be paid 50,000, 70,000, 90,000 or whatever so that we can create a second tier of players that are in the development league getting 20,000 in a billet. Don't forget that, again, it's a business like anything else. You go ask an employee at Tim Hortons, do they want to be paid more? They say, of course. Um, but is there the room to pay them more? Now you can say that Tim Hortons makes billions of dollars, fine, but uh, Tim Hortons also has to deal with shareholders. They have to deal with expenses of the coffee and the donuts and the ice caps and all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, should Tim Hortons employees be paid more? Sure, why not? But is there the money to do it? Mm -hmm. Hockey pays its players out of its revenues. So if you don't have bums and seats, and even if you have bums and seats, if you're playing in Laval, or you're playing in Brossard and you're, you're selling out, selling out to 1,500 people, 2,000 people, 2,500 people. That's the money that funds a $20,000 a year salary. Mm -hmm. You're not playing an 82 game schedule. You're playing a 2030 game schedule. So the fact is that just there's not the revenue there. So is it morally just that you're not getting a living wage? No, it's not morally just. But where's that money to come from? So again, you either need that um, angel investor you need the, the Natalie Portmans, the Serena Williams that say, hey, I made my millions reaching the top of my craft and I'm now going to take that and I'm going to give it back regardless of the return on my investment. Um, you need to find that group of people that are willing to do that and to stand by and to help raise that wage to something that can create a second tier. Uh, if, if that can't happen, then that's where the danger comes in of the viability that you're right. You're just going to see teenage, uh, you know, young women that say, all right, uh, I've accomplished everything I can at the NCAA level and I got my frozen four. 
And I guess that's the end of it for me, right? It, it, it's, the, it's the glass ceiling of women's sports that needs to be broken through, but it, it needs to come through revenue. And the WNBA, after a quarter of a century, is starting to kind of put cracks in that ceiling. But notice that they're still way off from the Kevin Durant salaries, right? So yeah. th they still have so much further to go that they're still talking about, you know, 10% of what the men get paid. Mm -hmm. um, so think about how much time was required to get to that point, how much struggle, um, but also the pool of talent that was there to be able to reach this point. That's the uphill battle that hockey's facing. Yeah. But do you think it's like an, ex uh, sorry, like, uh, <laughs> do you think it's like an exponential curve though? However, cause like this is assuming it's a linear, like, and at, at the end of the day, I don't think like. I mean, I can't speak the WNBA players, but like for, for us, we're not like we want NHL salaries. Like we want a lot less just to start it, realizing that um, we aren't ignorant to the fact that it, it's a business. I think for, for us, it's just seeing so much reluctance to investing, you know, finding those angel investors, et cetera, where it seems like the men often get uh, like, the, what is that? The football league, the X or the XFL. the XFL, yeah. You know what I mean? Like for them, yeah. it was just like, oh, there's already football, but no problem. Here's all this That's money. More. It seems like there's no problem throwing yeah. money there. Let's see if it works. Uh, where on the women's side, it, it's it's very difficult. And I guess my question there was just, do you think it's an exponential curve where you're going to have a lot of incremental gains? And at one point, we're going to get through that ceiling and the revenue and the fan base is going to carry you so far as you, you push it, I guess. That's exactly it. You're, you're okay. completely right, Melanie. It, it is exponential, but notice that you have to ride through then those early years, right? And so mm -hmm. it seems that kind of, look, all leagues have it, that start, stop, start, stop. Um, and I'm not talking about pandemic. It's that, you know, there's yeah. a WNHL <laughs> and then there's not a WNHL and then it's back again, but it's under a different name. And, you know, all of those leagues had it. And the unfortunate part is, you know, where I was saying the 1950s, those leagues went through it back in even yeah. before that, right? You know, the NHL started in what, 1917 with four teams. Uh, and one of those teams was gone after like three games because the arena burned down. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's kind of that sort of equivalent. The, the exponential bit, though, is going to come where, you know, if you look at the way that the women's games uh, were kind of portrayed 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago, right? sexuality it was that you know we, we want to portray you as like extremely feminine and like thank god that is gone right it's let's let's promote you on the basis of talent uh let's go out there and just show hey you can ball or hey like you are elite uh in terms of your skill and, and what's going to happen uh is what we're actually seeing in the men's game is going to slowly start to appear in the women's game all of them about how for a lot of NCAA players that's kind of for a lot of women's hockey athletes that's the pinnacle right now for a lot of them but um, something I wanted to discuss was that you know there are some NCAA players other university players in Canada who will look to the NWHL as an avenue to pursue their career and we don't talk about the NWHL too often in the best of lights. I mean, we're not going to lie. Mel, you're PWHPA member for a reason. I worked for Les Canadiens. I, I, you know, I've heard things about the NWHL. So I try to stay as objective as I can. And I'm sure 
uh, Moshe, you've had a, a couple of PWHPA players talking your ear off too, but you know, that is still an avenue for women to go play hockey. Uh, at the end of the day, that's the only option after university in North America right now. Um, and yes, did you want to add something? No? Okay. <laughs> um, so what I wanted to talk about was, you know, the NWHL, they're, they changed, uh, they announced a change in governance uh, this past week. It's part of why we wanted to record this episode so soon is because we wanted to address it. Um, so, of course, uh, the league now has a new commissioner uh, in Tyler Tominia, and Danny Rowland has stepped down and will preside over the four other teams that don't have private ownership, and she will seek out such ownership for those teams. Um, and, of course, now they also want to move closer to the NHL, MLB, NFL models in unincorporating, uh, in becoming an unincorporated association. So I want your thoughts a little bit on the NWHL up until now, Moshe. Do you think that, you know, what they're creating an environment that can provide some sustainability? I mean, personally, I'll share my opinion on just the league itself. You know, I've heard not so flattering things about it um, from players. I've, but I've also seen the other side of people who work for the league and, and whatnot. And I personally, I just see it as like another avenue for women's hockey players to pursue. I know Mel, you kind of share that opinion in the sense that, you know, you have every right to go play for that league. You do you, everybody has their own agenda. They have to lead their own lives and other players would rather maybe join the PWHPA or maybe even go to Europe as was the case with Katia Klimahedra who played in in Sweden I think this past year so I'm just curious Moshe to see you know what are your thoughts on the NWHL in light of the changes that they've announced uh, in the past week so look in in order to have I'm going to try and dance around this delicately um <laughs> What you've seen in the last, say, 20 years in uh, the men's sports is that the ones that are doing the best financially, the ones that are doing the best in terms of being able to um, kind of provide labor peace and, uh, you know, the, the kind of teamwork is that you have to get the buy-in of your players. They are your most important asset. At the end of the day, if you want to be in the business of uncertainty of outcome, you need to make sure that the players are on board, right? So. It, whether that's in the form of revenue sharing or whether it's in the form of merely allowing players to be themselves and to express themselves and to uh, really kind of create a partnership, I, I think we can go in order in terms of which leagues have been most successful and which have been least. Major League Baseball continues to treat their players as if they are chattel. And and that's why you're going to get through this World Series and you're going to see unholy labor uh, disruption in whatever next year is going to look like. The NBA has done the best in making sure that the players are on board. Adam Silver, since taking over as commissioner, has really tried to advance the David Stern agenda of making sure that, you know, the Chris Pauls, the LeBron James have a seat at the table and are enriching themselves because they're working together. NFL is probably closer towards that. The NHL seems to be somewhere in between, but maybe a little towards the uh, MLB end of things. And that's why they continue to kind of struggle. The women's, uh, you know, NHL version is going to have to find a way to make sure that the players have a seat at the table to make sure that they are buying into the product, that they believe in it themselves. You can't just approach it and say, hey, we're giving you a place to play. What's your problem? Shut up. Um, yeah. That's not going to work. Mm -hmm. If you bring them to the table and say, 
This has to be a partnership. Our success is your success and your success is our success. Then this is the way that you're going to have kind of advancement then uh, in that league. You mentioned, you know, players taking off for Sweden. Um, there's still a competing aspect here between the, the barnstormers and the, the league and they're, they're not all going to survive. So mm -hmm. again, you know, you want to continue to undermine each other by um, finding ways to disagree and argue and, hey, go for it. Somebody's going to come out a winner here in the end, right? But the, the way that sports leagues are viable is that there can only be one. And so the faster that it's figured out which is that one, the faster that you can go about, you know, as Melanie was saying earlier, hitting that uh, exponential curve and, and hitting the takeoff point. If all it is is just um, infighting and bickering, of course, nobody's going to want to financially back that because you don't know if you're backing the loser right? Why am I going to invest hundreds of thousands, let alone millions of dollars in a league that could be gone tomorrow because it just can't survive. There can only be one. So th there has to be a way that, um, you know, everybody needs to figure out who's the winner, how do we get behind this, and then how do we kind of all hands on deck channel resources into it. I'm not sure that uh, the change of leadership is necessarily going to be the, the big solution. Again, it, it continues to show that there's a certain element of um, infighting that's going on. Um, right, we don't know why that's, you know, most of the articles, I'm sure that's not something they wanted to disclose. No. And, and if you take a look at, again, you know, compared to say the men's games, right. Can we, can we name the commissioners of the men's leagues, right? Gary Bettman is widely despised by fans, but he's been the commissioner now for over 20 years and he's expanded the game from 21 teams to 30 teams. And for the most part, those teams are all more or less viable. We had a Southern Stanley Cup this year. Who would have imagined such a thing, right? Roger Goodell has been the uh, commissioner of the NFL now for, what, over a decade? But he was the handpicked successor as well right. of the, the previous commissioner, right? Um, Adam Silver was the right-hand man of David Stern. And so it was uh, a different face, but it was a seamless transition. Mm -hmm. um, women's hockey needs to figure out who exactly is in charge here and within that, who's in charge, it's who are the stakeholders that are at the table. Um, bringing in the NHL can only be seen as a positive thing. Yeah. Um, but again, it, it's the, the players themselves have to have somebody who's, you know, out front, publicly visible uh, in the same way that the Chris Pauls and the LeBron James are, right? And so, you know, um, and Natalie Spooner, right, is one of those people that gets a lot of airtime, and rightly so. Um, but then, okay, let's turn that into as well, that that's going to become the, the game's Chris Paul, LeBron James, that's going to be the one that's at the leadership position as well, as well as being an elite player, as well as being a veteran presence in the locker room. And right, yeah. who else are we going to bring forward then as that part of the generation that's going to lay that you know, groundwork that works with a commissioner's office? And so I, I think there's still this disconnect that's going on in women's hockey where it's not being, being viewed as a true partnership. I know the players want it, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as well, there's, there's also, I think, a lack of cohesion among the, the women's players too, right? I, I, I know there's, um, you know, uh, arguments in the NBA, right? We even saw it very briefly surface very quickly um, during the playoffs when the, the Milwaukee Bucks just walked off the court uh, as a, a social protest. Yeah. Um, and there was that meeting that night where um, LeBron James was rumoredly ready to just walk out and pull the Lakers from 
the entire game. So, you know, you do see it surface, but man, it's quickly tapped down where they look like they're cohesive. Um, that makes it a lot easier to bargain with the owners. Uh, even if you still get a raw deal, even if you still don't get what you justly deserve, um, you're getting closer to it than if you're a complete mess of, uh, you know, warring tribes arguing with each other. Of course, nobody wants to get behind that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what's hard, I mean, like, I don't view it as like a warring with the end up for me. Like, I, I kind of think of the P-Dub as our own entity and, and we're looking for backing for us. If other players want to come join, that's fine by me. Um, I think the difference is, you know, it's either you, you kind of join a league or you don't play anymore. So it's a, like a little different because we don't have a lot of leverage in the sense that some people just, you love hockey, you just want to play and, you know, going to play a beer league you're not getting that competitiveness. It's really hard to, to kind of settle that, I feel. And, you know, for us, it's, we get a lot of, we don't get pushback, but you see it on Twitter, like the P-dubs maybe looking for the NHL to back them. They don't need like them to back them up. And for me, it's just like, we need an investor. We're not going to lie at the end of the day, we need some, some initial money to get us started and a lot of emotional backing to stick through and ride through that kind of, uh, linear increase until we could hit that exponential launch point. So for me is what we've discussed like as a, a unit is really it's important if the NHL does want to come in and back, it's important as you said that we have a, a say in what it's going to look like. Yeah. You know, we're not I'm not going to sit here and let us just roll with what what they have planned for us because it might not be um, equal to the vision we have for what we want to be. And, you know, I think for us too, a lot of it is a little bit more like the WNBA as far as like social justice and kind of really inspiring young women to keep going where I think we have a lot of incentive to do that because that's, that's what's going to get us to that launch point. Um, uh, You know, we're not going to reap the benefits of, of what we're kind of laying the groundwork for, but, you know, maybe my daughter will be, uh, the the manning on espn <laughs> in the, in the future so if i can give you a, a, an, an analogy then let's let's go back to the 1970s right so i said kind of at the top of this uh podcast that you know there was a an nhl and a wha right so what forced them to kind of abandon this this disagreement as to which one was the true league, the true successor to hockey, it was Wayne Gretzky, right? Wayne Gretzky was with the Edmonton Oilers, which was part of the WHA. Um, Gordy Howe, Brett, uh, Brett Hall, Bobby Hall made the jump to, you know, the Hartford Whalers and to the Winnipeg Jets. That was part of the WHA. And all of a sudden the NHL said, okay, get back to the table here. Let's come to a, a, a solution here. And they absorbed those teams that were still surviving at the end of the financial fights between them. Mm, The ABA had Dr. J, right? Julius Irving, who was like slam dunk, big Afro, the red, white, and blue ball. And um, the three-point line was an ABA creation, not an NBA creation, right? Um, So what happened then was when the glitz of that game um, started to kind of conflict with the staid Bill Russell uh, NBA style, all of a sudden, um, it's let's talk. Joe Namath guaranteeing a win for the New York Jets in Super Bowl three, right? That's kind of where I see the women's game right now is that what you need is the P-Dub and the N-Dub to basically have like a brawl of who's the true hockey champion among women, right? And what's going to happen then is that, you know, if the N-Dub has kind of the backing here of maybe the, the NHL or has maybe the, you know, it, it's when the P-Dub rises up and smacks the end up in the face and say, hey, 
we're just as good and we can do this even though we don't have the resources all of a sudden that's where you kind of see the the settlement yeah. of all right we need to unify here because this is doing us no good if stars are over here stars are over here and we don't have a cohesive kind of vision of where the game is and so i i think there needs to be kind of that moment where um you know right now it's merely just a matter of where do you want to play here there whose leadership structure do you want to work under them or us mm -hmm. and it's doing nothing but just creating that divisiveness that makes it so hard for that angel investor to come in. Um, what the angel investor needs is to know, yeah, I can withstand losses for five years, 10 years, but I need to know that there's going to be a game on the other end of this. Um, it, it's still in that tug of war that we saw in football in the 1960s and hockey and basketball in the 1970s. It's interesting because I feel like we were starting to see that when the CWHL was around. We saw a couple yeah. of prominent players from the NWHL migrate over to the CWHL. So that's, you know, automatically when you brought up Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Hull, I was like, oh, okay, that was happening, but we didn't, I guess, didn't lead to the outcome that I think a lot of PWHPA members wanted at that time. I mean, I guess this isn't even a question, it's more of a thought. All the stars in women's hockey are with the PWHPA, right? So I've so not... Yeah. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> I mean, it's a fact though, right? I, like, it's not, it's like, I don't consider myself a star, but I look at the people I compete with, right? On the ice in Montreal currently, like there are very few of us who are actually working because the rest are all in, in development programs. So slowly I'm going to get phased out, which is good for the game. But <laughs> and, and that's it then, right? So it's, it's fine. So if the talent is all in the P-dub, then, then fine. It's, it's now selling that to the backer. It's, look, you don't want to put your money behind this. You want your money here because this is going to be the one that comes out on the other end, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's using backdoor channels and getting those... Shark end, tank. Yeah, it's getting those end up... But it's, beyond that, it's, it's using those end up players, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, all of you are in contact with each other. It's not like you won't associate with each other. You, yeah. you, you operate on the same national teams and the same dressing rooms and things like that. So go, you know, Bobby Hall them go get them to jump ship, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, once that happens, it's, it's the tipping point. It was once the, the NHL started to realize that, wait a second, these players are going over towards the WHA. These NBA players are bypassing us and they're heading for the ABA that all of a sudden it brought them to the table and said, okay, wait a second, we need to rethink this. Otherwise we might be the ones that aren't around even though we have incumbency. So yeah. it, again, it's just, it, it's kind of the turf wars that, we see in all of these other leagues that just they, they need to resolve themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and then once there's one brand that everybody gets behind and speaks with one voice, then you, you're going to have that exponential growth. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you know, I think uh, as much as we want to keep talking about this and we can go on this for hours, we're approaching the end of our time. This always happens way too fast. So, I mean, I guess what we want to close on is just your thoughts uh, about, you know, what are your hopes at the end of the day for the future of women's sports, specifically hockey, because there is a WNBA in North America and NWSL and whatnot. But for hockey, aside from the NWHL, as we've discussed, that's about it. And, and everybody else is in, an, in, a, in a unit that's working to build a professional league. So, you know, what are your hopes for the future? There is the possibility of a league there. It's, it, there is the chance that it can be viable. There is a chance that 25 years from now we'll be sitting here, uh, hopefully not in a pandemic world, but like say together in a studio talking about the success of, of yeah. 
you know, whatever the, the women's league is that emerges out of these fights, it, it is there. Um, I think that maybe a little bit of rebranding needs to happen as well uh, at the Olympic level where we're cheering for the flag, not necessarily the players. A little bit more of the branding of the women themselves, a little bit more of kind of pushing individuals out. I know it doesn't go with the team sort of dynamic, but uh, we need to start seeing some faces in the way that we identify that this is a LeBron James fan, whoever they're playing with, rather than we cheer for Team Canada, whoever's wearing the jersey. And so... You know, there is a chance here that this can be marketed well uh, and it can grow. Um, start small, start modest, create super teams. There's an incredible amount of talent. We do see it every four years in the Olympics. We see it every four years uh, in World Cups and things like that. So it, it's there or, you know, every year in the World Championships. Um, push it out there. Let, let's see it, right? It doesn't have to be sexualized. It just has to be that, look, these are the elite athletes at the top of their game, and here's who they are, and here's what they believe. And um, you start building that, you get a league that is unified, you get a partnership between the players and the ownership structure, whatever that is, and there's viability. And, and, and I think that's the best thing to, to look for right now. Um, I, I think that we've got another... 12 months, 18 months of our current sort of living arrangement. I, I think it's really important that, um, you know, women's hockey finds a way that you got to figure out how you're going to barnstorm. Um, even if it's just these kind of uh, pods uh, like the NCAA March Madness, but mm -hmm. if, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind and it's the CFL's issue that they're not going to be around much longer if they don't figure out a way to get a game played. Yeah. So I, I think that there, there's the chance here but I think we're always talking about there's a chance. It's just at some point, like enough already, um, overcome this, this fighting, overcome this disagreement, figure out what's best for the, the majority of people and provide that avenue for the, the young women today that are watching, looking for leaders, looking for people to emulate. And, and that's going to give you that exponential growth. It, it's there. It's just a matter of um, one voice, kind of. One angel investor. <laughs> okay, before we let you go, I have to ask, you're a Buffalo Sabres fan. I, I really want to ask why, but I want to ask, Taylor Hall, are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> so listen, part of being a Buffalo fan in anything uh, is just knowing that it's kind of our birthright to uh, suffer. Okay, <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that we learn in sports economics is that sometimes the reason teams are bad is because they're just badly owned. And I think that, you know, <laughs> The, the Sabres just have a, a way of taking people and helping them to not meet their expectations. And it's just a matter of just waiting for that uh, banana peel to, to slip on. So um, listen, the, the Sabres had their chance 20 years ago. Um, I they was did. cheering. I was cheering for Tampa this year, merely as spite for <laughs> Dallas uh, in the Stanley <laughs> Cup 20 years ago. I can't let it go. But uh, uh, no, I, I'm going to say that uh, Taylor Hall is not the solution. <laughs> I, don't okay. think, I don't think that uh, I'm going to be coming back on this podcast anytime soon crowing about how great the Sabres are. So um, uh, no, it's, it's not the solution. But uh, hey, listen, anything uh, at this point would be acceptable because uh, I just want to see hockey again. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I will say sports seems to be unique in this aspect. You could have a shitty product and you're still going to show up to watch them. <laughs> you know, Jerry Seinfeld jokingly said that you cheer for laundry. 
yeah. right? Like it's, it, it's a weird sort of, you know, that all of a sudden that player puts on your team's jersey and they're, they're yeah, fantastic. And the moment they take it off, it's like, I couldn't care less about you. I hate your guts, it. right? And I'll excuse any infidelities and any uh, behavioral issues uh, as long as you're with my team. And outside of that, it's throw the bum out. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it really is unique in the way that it builds up that uh, Apple sort of following the way that you were yeah. talking about the iPhone. Um, and that's the thing, right? It's, it's we, a we brand loyalty, that. right? We yeah. love competition. That's human nature. And so we want to see it at its best. And so it really doesn't matter if it's men or women, we just want to see elite competition and we want to see things that we can't do. We think we can, but we can't. And you know, that, that's what makes it really enjoyable. That's what gives you that uncertainty of outcome that all of us are looking for. And we'll, we'll put money behind if, if it's there. <laughs> I will tell you this, I would love some certainty about the COVID pandemic. That is an uncertainty I am not enjoying, but this has been really nice, Moshe. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Anytime. And it was really an exciting conversation. I mean, I like to look at things objectively. Obviously, I have a lot of emotional attachment to a women's league starting up, but I think any kind of information is helpful because, and also just like a reassurance that it is probably possible. We just have to be a little bit patient and just keep punching at that wall and eventually we're gonna get through it. Well, bring me back anytime you want. I, I, I love talking about uh, sports and economics and uh, this was really enjoyable. So anytime you want, uh, call me back. Let's, uh, let's not have emails go missing for- <laughs> That would happen again. That would happen again. <laughs>